0: God's Plan for a Healthy Church, we're back in our study today. If you have uh, little ones and you'd like them to be in Sunday school, they can be dismissed at this time on downstairs up to grade 6 if you'd like. God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians, Material Possessions. If uh, you haven't been with us, we've been in this study for quite some time, but don't think that you won't come away with something in, that the Lord wants you to have. Anytime you deal uh, exegetically, expository with the Word, you come away with the blessing. The Lord is clear on what He wants you to do, and so be encouraged. As uh, we move into our teaching time, author and speaker Randy Alcorn, who, by the way, is one of my favorite authors, I would recommend his books to you, particularly the book that he wrote about heaven, one of, probably the, one of the best um, as in regard to heaven and, and a, an accumulation of, the, of many of the scriptures that deal with it and put all together in one place. But he also does a lot of novels, which are, are wonderful, and pull in the eternal perspective uh, of life and all the things that go on there, and he he uh, does just a great job. But he he leads a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries. You can look him up at uh, epm.org. He covers a number of topics that are impacted by the eternal perspective. Uh, one of them, obviously, is giving, which is what we're talking about. He's done a number of interviews of believers. You can find them on there from different walks of life. One of them is an executive with Microsoft Corporation. So not everybody who lives in, in Washington is a pagan. We do have many who are there who follow and walk with the Lord, and this interview uh, perhaps will resonate with some of you. Some of you will have some similar experience, so I'm going to read it to you. I think it's beneficial. It leads us into our section today. Uh, The first question he asked uh, with the longest response is, what is your position and what are your professional responsibilities and some of your thoughts on money that comes in from that spot? And Mayor, the executive who works for Microsoft, says, quote, Over the years, I've held a variety of marketing and business management positions, mostly with the division that works with PC manufacturers. I've been at Microsoft during nearly all the major product launches and I've seen a generation of young people become wealthy in a very short period of time. I've also seen people lose their wealth through the dot-com demise and recession and watched firsthand as people who put their security in wealth have been devastated. It's also hard to see the shackles of wealth choke the life out of people, which happens a lot around here. I've observed a lot about how money affects people in different correlation with the values they place on it. They go on to say, money's a blessing, but it is also a burden when we're given more than we need for basic necessities. We all desire more, but when money comes, it is laden with the traps of greed and idolatry. Being a faithful steward of money also takes more energy, than one would ever imagine, it is a constant nagging companion who always wants more of your attention and less on the person of Jesus. It's impossible to serve both and therein lays the battle. Stewardship is the Christian life, it is about what we do with every resource given to us every day we walk on the earth and every relationship we have. The difficult task of stewardship is mustering the discipline and the will to manage the problem child called money. Here's an analogy. At Microsoft, I'm often in charge of millions of dollars used to market Microsoft products. I start each year with a certain amount, and I'm responsible for making each dollar spent equate to more money earned. If one year I decided to use some of the money, since there is so much extra anyway, to pay off my house and buy a boat, I'd be fired and sued for damages. How unfair. Certainly I could be more productive at work if I were free from the stress of debt and had an adequate leisure time. Still, Microsoft or any other employer wouldn't go for this logic. It would be a thief. I would be a thief. It's the same when we rob God by not being good stewards of what he's given us. Spending is no problem when money is no problem. Now, I'm not saying that if we have all the money in the world that spending isn't the problem. I'm saying that our spending habits are not a problem if we've been able to recognize all of our money is God's and we've learned to be good stewards of the wealth that God has trusted with us. Sound easy? I think it takes a lifetime of practice to really learn this one. They go on to say, giving is a safeguard that God has created for us. When we give, we are regularly reminded that all that we have belongs to God and not to us. When we neglect giving, we can easily slip into thinking about the things we should do with our money. However, when we give, we accept his help to to manage money, just like when our children ask us to take and carry a heavy load for them, They are saying that they need our help with God's help to manage the temptations that come along with money. We need his help, and giving is where we reach up to take his hand and his offer to help. Second question, how has your giving affected your life, your marriage, and family, and or your walk with God? Answer. Every time we give, we acknowledge that everything we have has been given to us by God. He is our lifeline, our source for everything. And here's an interesting thing to note. Our children are adopted, they said, and when we were to adopt our first child, her birth mother had several requests of us. She wanted to know our Christian testimony, our beliefs regarding children and education, and specifically our views on giving. She wanted to be certain that she was placing her child in a family that trusted God, and to her that meant they were serious enough to know that every blessing came from God, whether it be wealth or children. We've always been humbled by the reminder she gave us regarding this important relationship between giving and blessing and our walk with God. Question, have you experienced real joy in your giving? And if so, what does the joy come from? How would you describe the joy of giving? Answer, the best part of abundance is giving. Think about it. The more we give, the more we're given to give away. I think about the disciples giving away the loaves and fishes and imagine that becoming completely giddy as they went through their first dozen baskets of food, to give until all are satisfied. Next to walking every day at the sight of Jesus and seeing him resurrected, this had to be the highlight of their lives on earth. The only real freedom that money offers is when you give it away. Last question. As you've seen other Christians in their giving path, what have you learned about how generous giving changes lives? Answer. Giving produces freedom 100% of the time. Freedom from the bondage of things, freedom to receive more from God, and freedom to be a conduit of blessing to others. Christians who have freely given their time, money, and themselves are the people who have changed eternity for themselves and for countless others. Without fail, people who approach life and wealth with open hands receive more blessings because they are in a position to do so. And just another thought, giving is not a donation to God. He gets along just fine with our meager donation. Giving is for us. It's our safeguard. Doesn't that sum up what we've learned so far? Apparently, other people have grasped this very important concept and these principles that we've come through. I want to read our passage today, so turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians 9 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter. It's only 15 verses. Just take us a moment. And we've gone through it a couple of times, and I want you to, at at the close of this little interview, I want you to see some of those things that she resonated uh, so very clearly for us to understand and how they've, under, how they've come to grips with these things. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. So it's 2 Corinthians 9.1, verse 2. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Verse 3, but I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared, otherwise, verse 4, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previous promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Verse 6, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Verse 9, as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, verse 14, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And as I've said, we've read that passage numerous times now, and it's, it's probably becoming familiar to you, as it should as we've worked our way verse by verse through this letter. And we've seen a a few principles that have helped us grasp and give us some handholds on the letter, some things that Paul wants us to know that we can pull out. Number one, New Testament giving is exemplary, obviously. Uh, The Macedonian believers were exemplary in their giving. And number two, New Testament giving is contagious. When one person starts, usually others follow. Number three, when we give generously, faithfully, and sacrificially and follow through with those commitments, we avoid shame and a negative testimony. Number four, a faithful, generous, giving church can be a credible model for other churches to follow. We've seen that very clearly. Number five, on the pathway to blessing, New Testament giving is giving that has prevailed over sin. The ability to conquer covetousness and wanting more and holding on to more is to be generous and unselfish. And when we are that way, uh, by understanding that these uh, words are just as much for us as they were for the first century church, uh, we get the blessing of God's plan for our security. It's not the world's plan. It's a plan completely different from the world, and if you've had some type of anxiety about your security, these passages are for you. And then we saw in verse 6, this is where we ended up last time, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also weep sparingly and he who sows bountifully will, weep, will also reap bountifully verse uh, the, the sixth principle we saw was when we sow free will giving to god we're promised to reap a harvest back from him and this is the promise from him to us we're not asking him for something that he hasn't already said uh, he will give and then verse seven said each one of us must do just as he's purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves this remarkable verse for god loves a cheerful giver and that principle seven was on this pathway of blessing The individual who follows through with a predetermined, single-minded giving, that's what it means when it says purposed, predetermined, single-minded, is the recipient of a special love from God to them. That's where we ended last time. And that's precisely what the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to say, a very remarkable verse, would you like to enjoy a special love from God, then give in this way. This is not the same love that God has for the whole world, this is a different type of love. And I gave you the illustration last week, Much if, if your children or perhaps uh, someone that you know uh, that you love unconditionally does some specific selfless thing, some, some, uh, 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 gives some gift, does some certain thing, they, they receive a special love from you. Even though you love them unconditionally and love them fully, there's this wonderful relationship that they have, un- they have discovered what it means to walk with the Lord, and that's such a joy to see. And this is precisely what we're talking about here. Uh, to purpose in your heart, to make a predetermination, to think about it beforehand, to pray about it beforehand—that's what it means to to give as you purposed, uh, to make a decision as your heart directs you beforehand, and follow through with a single mind of purpose. And then these things, which obviously don't—we don't, don't want to have in there—not grudgingly, so that means not sorrowfully or sadly or literally, uh, not regretfully. God doesn't want us to give and, and feel badly about it or sorrowful that we did it, and He doesn't want us to give under compulsion or from, that means to from out of necessity, literally based on the word that means to pull it from your arms. So the idea that is forcefully pulled from your grip. So the first one, not grudgingly, has to do with internal attitudes as it relates to when you give. The second one has to do, not under compulsion, has to do with external demands on you. So giving with a wrong internal attitude or giving because of of external pressure, uh, and we end up losing the reward. For God loves a cheerful giver that's that reward a marvelous thing and then more much more we're going to see in just a minute so there's only one way to give and that's cheerfully and the person falls into this unique category of god's special love and as i told you last week paul uses really three ways to show the church in corinth how they should give. first he starts with the exemplary uh, example of the Macedonian believers and just says, listen, this is what it's supposed to look like, New Testament giving, and then he goes through instruction, so this is what you're supposed to do, this is how it's supposed to look, and he takes them through all of that, and then he gets to this third one, which is the pathway of blessing, and if you do all of that, that, this is the blessing that's going to follow, and that's a remarkable way to teach through this uh, section of scripture that Paul uh, takes a look at, and so that's a very unusual verse, God loves a cheerful giver, and so that person falls into this unique category of God's special love. Now, let's look at verse 8, if you would, of chapter 9. And God is able, it says, uh, to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And as you can see, this is another very unique verse in this passage. Not only is there the possibility that you can have a special love from God, this principle number 8 on this pathway of blessing, the individual who follows through with this predetermined single-minded type of giving is the recipient of an open-handedness from god to them an open-handedness and god that's the one with a special love for those who give is able to make mark these all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed and the holy spirit carries paul along here to really pile up the superlatives on the verse and, and all these words, all, always, everything, abundance, every they're all forms of the same root word. And I think Paul is carried along here uh, in this way by the Holy Spirit to change the thinking of the Corinthian church and really everyone else, of course, who reads this passage because it applies to us and reaches to our time. Because our normal experience is when we give something away, we have what? Less. That's our normal experience. When we give something away, we have less. We understand that. But when the scripture refers to giving to God, the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we know that we won't have the same experience that we would have in the world. And verse 8 starts out this way, and it starts out this way. It says, and God is able. And I love that. And, and so again, we pause like we did last week as we kind of connected to the first century church and realized that although there was some uniqueness to that first century church, that there's some connection still for us. And one of those things is when a question is asked or a command is given, we respond and and here's the question because it really speaks to our time do you believe this do you believe that God is able there's really two questions i think rolled up there do you believe that God is able to prosper you when you give away what you have because that's precisely what the verse is saying and number 2 that he will do it now remember i say this often it's it's my uh, it's the small print at the bottom that's just is you know guilty by association people have misused these verses over and over throughout the years and we're not we're just teaching them like they're Clearly, that like they, we clearly see them in the scripture, on a foundation of understanding where everything comes from, we've taken a number of months to do that. So the question is: Do you believe that God is able to prosper you? Because God is able, that's what it says in verse eight, and, and prosper you when you give away what you have. And number two, and that He will do it, and that He can reverse the natural experience, because that takes faith. Because but without faith, it is impossible to what. So that's not unusual for us, is it? Remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, I mean, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and mark this, what? He is the rewarder of those who seek him. And it takes confidence to believe in the fact that God is able to do it. It's a pro- it's promised to us because it's in the passage, and we're going to look at that promise in just a minute, but the question is, do we believe that he has the power to do it and that he has the desire? That's, those are the questions back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 4 Paul said to the church that when he came he said my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that verse 5 your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God and and here's the thing acting in faith in this way can appear foolish in the wisdom of the world and relying on the power of God to switch the normal experience of giving, which is you have less, to actually you have what you had and then more can also look foolish to the world. The wisdom of man says there's no way to get ahead if we give generously, sacrificially, and faithfully. There'd be no way for us to ever get on top of what we need to do. That's how, that's how we have less. That's what, uh, the, word, that, that's what the, the world would say. But if our faith rests on the power of God, then... We will give in this way because we'll believe in his power to provide for that promise and his desire to follow through with what he said he can do. God says, this is my plan for your security. And we've talked about this often as we've gone through uh, these passages, as we looked at where everything came from and all that. Because if you had some anxiety about your security, you had some anxiety about what's going to happen for the future, God's already had a plan for you all along for you to have uh, great rest and hope in what he's planned for you to do. This is how I'm going to resupply you. This is how I'm going to pay you back. It's how I'm going to make sure that you have everything that you need. And how many times, beloved, if you think about this and you think about your time in the Word of God, how many times have men and women throughout the Scriptures trusted in the power of God to fulfill a promise He's made Then acted on it in faith, knowing that He would follow through? Let's just look at a couple because they're, they're enriching and I think they help to under, uh, underpin all of the things we've been talking about. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. I'm going to read the passage. I'd like you to be processing what's the promise, what are they, what are they relying on as we read the, pra- the passage, because some of it's implied, some of it's clearly stated. Here's one. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So they pulled up short, remember, and, uh, and the son had said, um, where's the lamb, Dad? What did Abraham know? It was supposed to be his son. But what did Abraham say? God will provide the lamb. And so they walked on in faith, knowing that the Lord wasn't going to take away, and even if he did take away his son, he could restore him, couldn't he? So Abraham had that faith. I'm going to walk and do what God said. God's going to provide the lamb. And so they went forward. How about Exodus 14? And I'll just give a few. We could look at hundreds of these passages. Exodus 14, I'll just give you some of my favorites. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. What promise were they counting on? That God was going to deliver them. So here's this huge army of Pharaoh following them up to the Red Sea. They're going to cross the Red Sea. But what do they really want to do? Turn around and fight. They don't want to get their back, put their back to Pharaoh. They think they're going to be slaughtered right there. What, is, what, is, uh, what does Moses say? Hey, you know what? The Egyptian army that you see behind you, you will never see them again. Go forward. Let the Lord fight for you. Did they? Yes. Did he? Yes. How about Daniel 3.17? If it be so, our God whom we served is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So what, are they, what are they counting on? And who is this? Is this Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? What did they do? They didn't bow down to the golden statue. Big no-no. And now they're standing there, and they're going to be thrown into the fire, and the king said, who's going to deliver you out of my hand? And they're like, oh, well, that's not a problem. Our God will, so they acted on that, didn't they? They weren't gonna, they weren't gonna recant. And I love the second, the next verse right after that, which just says, "Even if he didn't, and even if he doesn't deliver us, he still deliver you out of our, uh, us out of your hand." And we're not gonna bow down. And so, they walked forward in faith, didn't they? And did the Lord deliver them? Yes, he did. Did he put him in the fire? Yes. Did he deliver him from the fire? Sure. So that probably wasn't the combination they were thinking about, but it's the one the Lord acted on, and that was them relying on and going forward in faith, trusting the Lord that he would deliver those who love him. How about, uh, let's skip to the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Paul's talking to the church. He says, now to him who is able to establish you, I love that, right? He is able. Is he inclined to it? Sure. Is he able to do it? Absolutely. He's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. What are they counting on? What are we counting on? God's ability to firmly establish in salvation those who believe the gospel. And so we walk forward, don't we? That's how we live, isn't it? In the security of knowing that he is able to establish you and me, if you've repented and cast your faith on Jesus, who paid your your cost on the cross, then he is able to firmly establish you. How about Hebrews 2.18? For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered... He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What's the promise? That no matter what difficulty you may have in life and no matter how low the difficulty is and how hard it is, you can come before the Lord and you can pray and you have someone who's going to hear who has been through the difficult time and has come out on the other end and very equipped to help you. And so you do that, right, in difficult times. Sometimes the Lord takes us through hard times so that we will come to him in prayer more often than perhaps we did before. And that's a marvelous passage, and we act on that all the time, don't we? I hope you do. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. That's Jesus. Since we, can, we always live to make intercession for them. What promise can we count on and why? How long is he able to save us? Forever. Forever. For those who draw near to God through Jesus. You're secure, and so you live that way. You're not constantly going back and seeing if you have the title deed to life, right? Because you've already been told that you do. Because Jesus rose, you will. And so you walk in that promise, and you're firmly established there, right? How about James chapter 4, verse 12? There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one, here it is, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your, your neighbor? What, what are they counting on? What's James saying to count on? Well, God's ability to right all wrongs and judge rightly. So even when we're falsely accused and we have a hard time with it and nobody's listening and it doesn't seem like uh, what we're saying is making any sense, God's able to judge all that clearly and he's going to set all those things right that need to be set, right? How about Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, what's Paul telling the church to count on? God's nature, his power to accomplish what's good for us in our sanctification, to walk in that way, to understand that he is able to do far abundantly more, not just to bless us in some way that we really want to be blessed and put our life at ease, but also to bring us to sanctification, and that he promises to do that abundantly more than we can ask or think, see? How about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What are we counting on, beloved, in that statement? That God promises to save forever and always be about his work in us until we're perfected in Christ in our glorification. And he won't stop working on us, and he'll keep on doing it, and that's his purpose. And and Paul says, I'm confident you can be confident in that very thing. And so we walk forward in that, don't we? That is our life. It sums up our life. God has these commands for us to walk forward. He's promised a certain blessing, and we, by faith, walk forward, knowing that that's exactly what's going to happen, see? How about 2 Timothy 1 12? For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What was Paul telling Timothy to count on? Even in difficult times, even in suffering, he's not ashamed to have to go through it. Why? Because I know whom I believed, and I know he's able to guard what I've given him until that day. I'm secure. I don't, I don't waffle back and forth hoping that I haven't done too much to mess up or perhaps the difficult time I'm in is, is the Lord rejecting me? No. Last one, how about Jude 24? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. What's Jude telling us to count on? That your future is secure. The Lord is going to keep you from stumbling right on through to the end. Is going to present you before the Lord blameless with great joy. That is your future, secure. And you walk forward every day knowing that that's your direction. And here's this. Mark mark this. Faith always rests on the power of God to do what he says he'll do. And he doesn't have any limits. And he's not restricted in power in any way, nor is there anyone or anything that can restrain him from doing everything he says he can do. And it's the same in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. The question is not, is there a promise? It's here, and it's guaranteed. See, the real question is, will we respond as we should so that the promise can be ours? That's the question. We need to be like Abraham. Remember in Romans four twenty one, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Does that apply here or not? Abraham was fully assured that what God has promised, he was also able to perform. What was it? Move out of a land that you know to one you don't, and I'm going to give you descendants as as vast as the stars in the sky or the sand of the sea and a land that will belong to you. Go ahead and do it. And he believed what God had promised him to do and and that God was able to perform it. And rightfully so. The question of will God return what I give is answered, isn't it, in God's power? Isn't it answered in his faithfulness over the, over the millennia that we have been able to read about his faithfulness? And God's power is so great, he's not only able to make a return. Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you have an abundance for every good deed. So this is an open-handedness from God to you. He's able to make all grace abound to you. What's that mean? Well, grace are gifts from God. They are undeserved. They come from his hand to you. And he can make all grace abound to you. All the grace there could be in the infinite nature of God, that's all available. That's staggering, isn't it? The grace that is available through the infinite nature of God is available to you. That's the resource he has to pull on. And he gives it abundantly. To make all grace abound is, is the, uh, f- a form of the verb perisuo. It just means to be over and above. So the question is, well, over and above what? Well, any experience that we've had up to that point. How about start there? Over and above any expectation we perhaps have had about how that's all supposed to work out when we give away what we have in this proportional, single-minded, predetermined manner, see? And so Paul's just carried along to affirm to the church that God does not shortchange his people. The Christian that gives in this way doesn't lose. He gains, and not just the minimum amount. Paul just piles up the words to try and make us understand the tremendous resource available and God's ability to reach into the lives of faithful people personally who give in this way. So that's why he says... So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What, what is this? Well, it's speaking of things of the world, isn't it? It has to be. That's the only thing he could be talking about in this context because he's talking about giving things of the world. That's the central emphasis of here in Paul's letter because it's dealing with an offering and he and others are coming to take it up. So it has to be those things. So when you see this agricultural axiom, which we're, we're looking at here, The harvest is the same characteristic as the seed. That makes sense, right? If you plant corn, you get corn. Plant wheat, you get wheat. If you sow a certain seed, you get a certain type of harvest. And here the seed is material things. Now, put that understanding into this verse. So that always, then, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance. So the obvious application is when we sow material things, we're replenished by God. And God has unlimited resources in which to pay back. And it could come in lots of forms, And he makes sure that we don't have any needs. And the promise is when you give it away, you'll receive back grace gifts from God in abundance that will include the principal and the dividend. Now, when it says always having all sufficiency, that is the noun, artochia, that's an important word and I want to look at it just briefly. In ancient times, the word referred to this condition of life in which no aid or supports needed it has to do with the mind too contented with a lot in life and and it may be a feeling you can relate to this perhaps when you bought your first house and you made your first mortgage payment or perhaps you moved out of the house and you paid your first rent and then you paid all your bills by the end of the month and you looked around and you said i can do this i got this or maybe it's the feeling you have when you went on an extended through hike i i used to love to do that did it often and you had everything you needed on your back and you were able to manage all the obstacles and hardships extended trekking runs into and you were able to do the week or whatever or 13 days 14 days out away from everyone and then you came back and you had it all you, you did everything you needed you had everything you needed you, you were able to overcome all that stuff you just had a very self-sufficient and i could you know i could do this that's how the word was used in ancient times a prideful if you will self-sufficiency you'd seek for yourself Humanistic psychology attempts to do the same thing today with the self-esteem emphasis. You've probably seen the signs just down on Greenview Drive. You know, you're enough. You've got this. Empower yourself. That's, that's the sa- same idea, all intended to produce an independent, self-sufficient, proud, self-made people. Paul uses this word, though, and he comes in and he puts this word in here. He says, you know that sufficiency that you seek for yourself? You know that really good feeling that everything's good and it's taken care of? And, and I'm content, a calm assurance that comes from having all your needs met, here it is, mark this, God will afford that to you in everything. And some of you could put up your hand and you can say, I've experienced that. I, I understand that. We, we've, we've attempted to give faithfully, single-mindedly, uh, with a predetermined way to go about it, and the Lord has made us feel that way. Not because we did it, in fact we look around and say, how did we do it? Because we wanted to be sacrificial, so there wasn't enough for what we, all the stuff we really wanted. We just did it. And then we look around and we just say, wow, that's really amazing that the Lord has done that. God affords that to you and everything. Paul pulls that, that ancient word in and says, you know, you're going to be content, and you'll have everything that you need. And here's a question. Wouldn't you like that? It's a lot like Philippians chapter 419, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What kind of resource is that? And how clear is that promise? My Lord will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All the riches in Christ in glory is available to provide all of your needs, whatever they are. What a marvelous thing to think about. You give the things of this world, and God pays the harvest back to you of this, in the same way with surplus, money, possessions, etc. The seed determines the crop. And He does that that you may have an abundance for every good deed. And that's the last part of the verse. God gives it back with such overflowing, abundant generosity so that you can use it to do more good things. God finds this generous giver, he sets this special kind of love on them, and he continues to create this environment of self-sufficiency in that home. They feel very content, they know that things are taken care of, there's, there's an idea that we're okay, we're fine. It's not because perhaps you have this huge income and a big bank account, it could be having a very small income, but you know everything's fine. It's, it's that understanding that all your needs are met. And and it's not based on prideful thoughts of, I did this, you know, I, I put this all away, now our needs are met and I'm good, and insulating himself somehow, you think, from calamity. It doesn't work that way. It's on a reliance on God's providence and his generosity, which he provides and says that he'll provide in everything, and then he continually resupplies what has been expensed by giving, and he does it so that more good deeds can be done. And so this generous heart is allowed to continue to express itself in one good deed after another, and Paul's carried along to follow those remarkable statements with this one from verse 9. Look at verse 9 if you would. Take Corinthians 9.9. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And this, so this isn't a new idea. Paul is pulling out of the Psalms to make this statement. He's just echoing a much more extensive teaching from Psalm 112. In particular, verse 9, but I want to read all of them kind of as we begin to wrap up this morning. And look there, you don't have to, I'll put it on the screen, but you can look there if you want and make some notes. But in Psalm 112 verse 1, it's where he gets the quote, he says, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, what's that mean, who greatly delights in his commandments. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, the man who fears the Lord greatly delights in the Lord's commandments. It makes sense, doesn't it? If he's the Lord and he's given us the command, we're supposed to respond That's the bottom, isn't it? Isn't that uh, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? And as I've told you this before, that is really the foundation on which we deal with the Lord, isn't it? When we sin and we come back and repent, we hope the Lord won't deal with us harshly. It's one of the reasons why we don't want to continue in unrepentant sin. When people do that and call themselves a believer, they've forgotten the fear of the Lord, haven't they? Because he has the right to deal with us any way he wishes over our sin, doesn't he? And that's a little scary to me. And so Of course, we want to grow up and respond to him in love. We want to get to the point where we're doing what he says and we're responding because we love him and do it. But the bottom line, the foundation is we fear the Lord because he has charge over us. So it says, praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, and what's that mean? Who greatly delights in his commandments, and then the blessings really pile up. Look at verse 2. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. That's pretty great, isn't it? Those who fear the Lord, those who do his commandments, his generations. And we looked at a verse similar to that. The Lord can bless way on down the line from you if you're faithful and do what he asks you to do. Verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house. That's not surprising to us, is it? Because we just read the fact that the Lord will provide what we need And then a little bit extra as we give this way. So that's part of the commands of of giving, and, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures how long? Forever. And that's important to mark that. Light arises in darkness for the upright. Even in the most difficult times in the darkest places, the Lord brings and turns the light on so things can be exposed and you can do well. He's gracious and compassionate and righteous. That's those who greatly delight in his commands why because he's asked us to be gracious and compassionate and righteous and delighting in his commands more blessings and then verse 5 it's well with the man who's gracious and lends again we saw that's a command of the Lord isn't it to be gracious and lend for he will never be shaken the righteous will be remembered forever again very important how long that's going to last and then this verse 7 how appropriate for today he will not fear evil tidings the righteous who delight in the commands of the Lord doesn't fear evil tidings. And there are some. Are there not in the world today? His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. That's his response in evil tidings. His heart's steadfast. And is that an appropriate way to put your faith? Isn't the Lord going to sustain you anyway? And isn't he in charge of all that stuff? So you're just steadfast. You're not, you're not shaking back and forth because evil tidings. His heart's steadfast, trusting the Lord. His heart is upheld, he will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. In other words, even in evil tidings, at some point later, those who have set themselves against you or set themselves against the righteous, at some point will be brought low and the righteous will look on their adversaries with satisfaction. The Lord's put them where they need to be. And here's our verse, verse 9. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. Now mark this. God never forgets these acts. Do you understand? And we understand that from other places too. We understand that there's a way we can glorify the Lord forever by acting in some certain way. The Lord gives a crown or something and our, our arraignment of righteousness and we get, to, we get to glorify the Lord in all eternity. So when are we going to be able to do that? Well, obviously not in the physical realm today because uh, acting in such a way is, is looked at as, as foolish, not wisdom. Uh, to, to give in such a way as, 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 to, as to go contrary to what the world would say is how you're going to be taken care of. But the Lord doesn't forget that kind of stuff and that's what it means, his honor will be exalted, or his horn will be exalted in honor. His righteous deeds remembered forever. His righteousness endures forever. Several times in the chapter, he says exactly the same thing. That's precisely why Paul pulls it in. Giving such a way marks you in special love for the Lord and open-handedness from him to you. And this, uh, the lovely part about it is, being this such, in this way, you get to glorify Christ forever because you are like this gracious, he lends gives freely to the needs, all those kinds of things mark the lives of the righteous and the Lord doesn't forget it. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He'll gnash his teeth and melt away the desire of the wicked will perish. They're going to see, wicked are going to see you acting in such a way the Lord, rewarding that type of behavior, the faithful recompense for those who are faithful to the Lord, and that's going to vex them. How could that possibly be true? How can it work out that way? It can't work out that way. That's not right. And yet, that's precisely how it's going to work out. And they're going to gnash their teeth and melt away. That's going to be the end of them. The desires of the wicked are going to perish. So, again, the blessings that come from those who, who obey the Lord's commands, and then those who don't, their end is destruction. It always has been, always will be. So, in 2 Corinthians 9 9, then we're going to wrap up with this. As it's written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Here it is, principle 9. On the pathway of blessing, this type of righteous obedience follows you into eternity. What a marvelous thing that is. And I'm sure it's going to surprise us, won't it, who those folks are. There's lots of guys and ladies doing that. They're under the radar of faithful faithful with their families, faithful to give out the Word of God. They're not, not getting recognized on every Sunday, oh, they did such a great job. you are know, just doing the job, obeying because they fear the Lord and they want to do it and they love Him and they've modeled their life in such a way and they're reading the commands and they're doing them and the Holy Spirit is empowering them and, and then we're going to get to heaven and these people we didn't expect are going to be there and they're going to be glorifying the Lord in such a way that we never could because we didn't embrace any of these things. Let's see, what a marvelous thing that is. Stewardship is, is the Christian life. as We looked at the beginning. It's about what we do with every resource given to us, every day we walk on the earth, and every relationship we have, and every difficult thing that comes along. Where, where's our trust? Where's our hope? And how do we express that trust and that hope? Giving is a safeguard that God has created for us. When we give, we're regularly reminded that all we have belongs to God, and it doesn't belong to us. And the Lord doesn't forget that. And that's a great thing to think about. Let's close with that let bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in the word. We're so grateful to you for, for it and for the way it conforms us to your thoughts and your mind. We desire very much to, to be conformed in, in the way we conduct ourselves to be in the image of Christ, a reprint. And in all these things, Father, we, we recognize that you're motivating us by the promises. So to reject them would be to, re- to say you're not able or not inclined. You can't do it or you don't want to do it, and you've said you are able to do both and desire to do both, and certainly have the power to do both. So let us grow today, Father, let I said, continue to see these things and put them into practice. Your Holy Spirit is certainly capable and is at work in the hearts of people now, as we want to be more conformed uh, in this very important area of our life. And Lord, I pray that you'll bless us as we depart from here. We desire very much to be salt and light love our neighbor as ourself and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, help us be those kinds of believers in this world that certainly needs light and love. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said.